Have you ever stopped long enough in life? Just kind of pause life for a moment and ask yourself the question, what am I becoming? And some of you are like, no, that's why I go at this pace. I don't want to think about my life and what I'm becoming. So, so let's do that now. You know, pause and think day by day, moment by moment, week by week, month by month, season by season. You ever just paused long enough and just think through like, we're all becoming something or someone what am I becoming? And most of our greatest fears is maybe becoming someone we don't like or someone we didn't think we were, or maybe it's becoming someone around us, maybe it's becoming a parent or whatever that is, but we need to pause long enough and ask the question, what am I becoming? Uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Romans. I think this is uh, like week 16. If you've missed any of it, you can go back to YouTube and, and watch it or listen to it, or just, just read the Bible. It's, it's good enough. Just read it. Uh, and just kind of get us on track. Last week, uh, we saw that we are not condemned, nor are we saved by our works, which was really, really good news. No, we are either condemned by being in Adam and his works, or we are saved by being in Christ and by his works. All human beings from birth are in Adam by default. And the only way to not be in Adam is to be born again into Okay, Okay. let's try that again. Be born into? Jesus. There you go. Uh, and being born again is not something we work for, try for, strive for, anything like that. It is, from our text last week, a, a grace of God, a free gift from God. This is really, really good news. It's not based on your religious efforts. It's not based on your morality. It's not based on your works. It's not based anything upon you. It's all based upon what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's really good news, right? That's scandalous. That, I mean, that really is. Well, the, the church that Paul's writing to, it had Greek Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts to Jesus, and it had Jewish converts to Jesus. And when they were hearing this message of how good this gospel was, how good the good news was, it began to make the Jewish converts a little bit nervous. As a matter of fact, they started almost accusing Paul of taking God's grace a little too far. Like it was almost being accused of Paul of saying, hey, uh, you don't have to trust Jesus. You don't have to uh, do anything good. You don't have to obey the law. You don't have to do anything like that. You can just be saved. And the idea was it was going to cause people to be irreligious. And so the idea was to be irreligious and God is fine with you. And for many of us, you're like, sign me up for that. I want to be irreligious. But is that the way of Jesus? And so then there was the other side. No, 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 not irreligious. Matter of fact, we need to be good. We need to be moral. We need to look at God's law. We need to obey God's law to the T, dot the I's. We need to be perfect. We need to be moral. We need to be right. We need to actually be perfect, or at least fake it and let no one know the reality that we're not. And so the idea was like, well, I need to be religious. And for some of you, like, yes, sign me up for that. I want to be religious. Call me a Pharisee. That's what I want to do. But the question is, is that what Jesus wants us to be, to be like? What, what if there was another way? What if there was a, a third way that's not irreligious, it's not religious? And I think that's what we're going to see from our text today. So if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the, the back end of Romans chapter 5 and a little bit of the front end of chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so we have them in English and Spanish for you here. And then at center point as well, please stop by, grab one. That's our gift to you. And then also, if you've got a smartphone, if you download version, the, uh, the Bible is on there as well. But what we're going to look at today is 
based upon last week, we're going to kind of take a deeper dive into what it actually means to be in Christ, what it means to be Christ formed to look a bit like him. Because I'm going to say that Jesus was not irreligious. And I'm also going to say that Jesus was not religious. Now you're asking, what was Jesus? And my answer as best I can is, he was different. And so I think we can be different as well. And I want to make a statement, and this statement I'll kind of try to say over and over along the way, but, but I want us to hang our complete and total lives on the statement. And if you're not a Christian today, I'm glad you're, I want you to hear this statement as well, because it's a really good news statement. You ready? You might want to jot the statement down. I forgot to put it on the screen, so you might want to write it down. You ready? In Christ, what is true of Jesus is true of me. Because we, like we saw about being in Adam last week and what it means to be in Christ. But in Christ, what is true of Jesus is now true of me. Now, don't take that to the extreme like, Jesus is God, now I'm God. No, you're not. But what is true of Jesus, and we'll see how that kind of works out. It's true of you. Because the reality is, what was true of Adam was true of us as well, that we were condemned. That we were looked at as disobedient and sinful, and it was really bad. But now, because of Christ and all that he has done, and we trust Christ, what is true of him is now true of us. Why? Because sin no longer reigns in our life. Grace reigns in our life. And let me show you this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, are you there? You guys ready to do some work this morning? Okay, here we go. Uh, it says, now, so Paul's talking, now the law. When he talks about the law, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible, I believe, the Pentateuch, uh, the law that Moses uh, got from God. Now the law came to increase the trespasses. What does trespass mean? I mean, step over a boundary, step over a line. It means to sin. He says, now when the law came in to increase the sin, increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's an odd statement. So that as sin reigned in death, like sin ruled in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Question we should all be wondering about these two verses is, did God give us his perfect law, his sinless law, in order to make us sin more? And the answer is no. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's pretty simple what he means by that. It's like when we understand the law, when we read the law, it gives us language of what we're actually doing, in which what we're actually doing is sin. Now we know like, hey, that's a sin. Why? I read it, it explained it, and I'm doing that. That is sin. But I would argue that knowing the law can increase sin in our life. Do you agree? Yeah, it does. I mean, think about it. When they were first getting the law and they get the big 10, like in Exodus 20, you get the 10 commandments. Moses brought it down from the mountain. And one of the commandments was, do not covet. And they were like, covet? what does that mean? That means don't want to take something that your neighbor has, take that from them and have that as your own. So imagine in their mind, they're like, well, what does my neighbor have? And they start looking across the fence like, well, my neighbor, they've got a new camel. It's like one of those new model years, self-driving, natural leather, you know, seats in it. It looks great. And all of a sudden they look at their camel like, my camel is a piece of junk. It's worse. It overheats. It smells like a middle school locker room. It leaks a little bit of fluids. I want their camel. I know what coveting is. Now look, oh, by the way, it says don't covet your, your neighbor's wife. And they're like, well, what's my neighbor's wife look like? And so like, of course. See, the law is just showing us how bad we really are. It's giving us language to say like, oh, I'm, I'm really bad. The law is like an x-ray. It is showing how broken that we are. But here's the thing about an x-ray. The x-ray has no power to heal us. The law, I'm going to argue, has no power to heal us. It just shows us. 
And that's what Paul's like saying right there. He's like, there, we, sin reigned, and the law is showing you how sin reigned in death. Sin is reigning in your life. But then there's grace. Grace abounds. Now, what does he mean that sin increased, grace abounds all the more? God will outgrace our sin. If you have big sin, God's got more grace. If you have little sin, God has more grace. Why? Christian, listen to me. Sin no longer reigns in our life. Grace reigns in our life. That means if you have sin, God will meet it with more grace. Now that makes us a bit nervous, doesn't it? Because it just sounds like, well, Ty, won't that just make us sin more? And my answer, shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But this is exactly, I think, what Paul's being accused of by the church, by some of the Jewish brothers and sisters in there who were converted to Jesus. They're like, well, you take away the law, uh, then, and then everybody's going to sin, and, and it's just going to be crazy around here. So then we get to Romans 6.1. Look what it says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound all the more? What he's saying is this, and what he's being accused of is this. Are we saying that like, we should sin more in order to get God's grace? Like if I were to stand up here and say, okay, Christians, listen, here's your homework. As soon as you leave here, I need you to sin as much as you can. And you're like, doing it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and that way, you know, God will have to dole out more grace to you. Is that, is that what Paul's saying? Is that what I'm saying right here? And the answer's in verse 2. Look what he says right here. He says, by no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, you have different translations probably. Mine says by no means. Maybe yours says absolutely not or no way. I've heard some people have a translation that says heck to the no. Uh, there, there was one uh, uh, cultural prophet uh, by the name of Randy Jackson. I think he answered it pretty good. He said, it's a no for me, dog. <laughs> that was cheesy. <laughs> Somebody pop open a can of cheese with because that was cheesy. But the idea of the day, I'm going to have to strike that from the 11 and 6. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> The idea of the day was fear. The Jewish uh, followers of Jesus heard the gospel and thought, wait, if we no longer are, are, you have to obey the law or honor the law, then people will sin and do whatever they want. But here's what I think they were forgetting, and I think we forget as well when we take that stance. Once God commits himself to us, he will not decommit himself to us. It's really good. But they thought, no, no, no. No law will create abuse. Now, there's a theological term that's developed from this, especially from this text. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti means no. Nomianism means law. That there would be no law. Like everyone would be lawless. Like that you would do whatever you want to do in spite of the law. Like there's no law of the land. Have you ever seen a place like that? If you haven't, let me help describe one. It's called Fremont Street. I remember when I first moved out here like 16 years ago, we took the family down there. Hooray, it was fun. Man, I went down there recently. I'm like, oh my gosh, we found the gates of hell. It's here. Man, it's crazy down there. That's, that's a no-law land right there. But the idea of like having an antinomianistic view is like do whatever you want. God will forgive whatever, and he will fix whatever in your life. And I think Paul is arguing against this. He's saying that antinomianism or antinomianistic view is not the gospel. And here's the reason why. If you meet Jesus, and if you have this view, if you meet Jesus, you will change. If you have trusted Jesus, your life has changed. Some big, like my life really changed. People accuse me of being in a cult. Like my life really changed. Uh, Some little, but our lives will change. 
but, but sometimes we don't want it to change or we don't allow it to change. And here's, here's the reality, if not careful. We want Jesus to be our Savior. We'll say, Jesus, forgive my sin. Jesus, get me out of hell. Jesus, save me. But we don't want him to be Lord. And, and, and he, he's got to be like Lord, authority over us as well. We humans, we, we, we want things, but then we don't want things. Like the whole cake and eat it too. Like, like, you know, you want to be married, but you don't want to act married. You want to stay like single acting. You want to have kids, but then you don't all the time want to be responsible uh, with your kids. You know, you want a job, but like, I don't want to work hard for 40 hours kind of deal. Like I want a house, but I don't want to pay all these bills and keep all the maintenance up. It's kind of the same way. You want Jesus as savior, like save me, forgive me. But like, Lord, you're like, nah, I don't really want him as my Lord. Listen, you, you can't have Jesus as savior if you don't have him as Lord. He, 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 uh, he is the one that will lead us. I'm not the guy standing back telling Jesus what to do. Jesus is the one standing back telling me what to do. Why? Because he is my Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you ever get an opportunity, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story. Uh, he was a part of Valkyrie, the movement that, that killed Hitler way back. He ended up getting shot for it. And all. It's a, just an amazing story about a pastor. Uh, he said this about this antinomianistic uh, view of grace. He called it cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Amen. Yeah. Get it, Dietrich. Now, I know deep, deep down, now listen to me for you, I'm a, deep down, some of you are like, amen, Brother Ty. Now, by the way, if you call me Brother Ty, I know your secret. Yeah. You're Baptist, aren't you? <laughs> hey, I came from there too. It's cool. It's cool. You still call me Brother Ty. I love you. Amen. So what do we do? We go the other route. If it's not anti-noministic view, then we'll go the legalism route. We're like, hey, I'll go, like, I don't want no law. I want all law. And we'll go the legalism route. We'll say, I want more law, more religious, very legalistic, make more rules. If we can put more rules in the system, then we won't break God's rules. Wasn't that what the Pharisees did? I think the Pharisees were pure hearted coming out of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were like, hey, you know, we, we, we've uh, not followed God's law, not honored God's law for so long. Let's put some more laws in, our laws, to protect God's law. Then you fast forward into the Gospels and it's really bad news. We do that as churches, don't we? It's called legalism, legalistic church. Hey, by a show of hands, or maybe you don't want to put your hand up because that's the kind of church you grew up in as well, but by, by a nod... Uh, who in here grew up in a very legalistic church and or home? Give me that little nod. Yep, give me a little nod. And the idea was, hey, if we can take out everything and the words were secular, then we'll make a person love Jesus more and be a better, well-rounded person. How'd that work out? You know, we, we take out the good music. We call it secular music. We take out all the good music, which just leaves us with Christian music, which is like, oh, that's dicey. Take out, you know, like, oh my gosh, make sure you don't ever watch a movie in a theater. Some of you grew up in the idea, like, you could not watch a movie in a theater, not even a rated G movie, and here's the reason why. I've heard people tell me this. They thought, if I were to walk out of a movie theater and in the parking lot some other Christian saw me, it may make them stumble, for God forbid they may think I'm watching a rated R movie. And you know, as a Christian, the only rated R movie we can watch, The Passion of Christ. I had a friend tell me one time the first movie they saw was when they were 18 being rebellious outside their house. The first movie they saw was The Lion King. It's like, boy, you're living now. <laughs> but yeah, the idea was like, hey, you know, we, no, no pants. Can't wear pants, ladies. No, I, I said no pants. I'm like, what? 
<laughs> Skirts only for the ladies, no pants. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of clarification there. Wear pants. Um, but like, what's that going to do? Or like, you know, no drinking or no playing cards. Good Lord, no playing cards. No dancing. There's reasons why some of you should not dance here, me included. <laughs> but it's not for... No drums. I remember I was, um, I was a youth pastor a long time ago in a little B Baptist church in Kentucky. Wonderful church, got saved in it. Uh, but on a Wednesday night, uh, I, I, I committed the cardinal sin, and we formed a student band in the sanctuary, and people lost their minds. They're like, drums? People's bodies will start gyrating. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my. I'm not making fun. I, heard, I, heard, I didn't grow up religious. I didn't grow up in church, so I was like, this is all brand new to me. We can't watch Smurfs. Can't watch SpongeBob. What? Don't watch it because it's dumb. Just anyway, all that to say, did, did it make you love Jesus more? Did it make you love your neighbor more? Did it make you more attractional for people around you to love Jesus more? See, here's typically what it does. It puffs up. I'm better than everyone else. I'm a man. My hair's not long. I'm better than everyone else. I don't listen to that devil music. I'm better than everyone else. Or it makes you have to hide everything in your life, and that's typically what it is. I have to hide everything. Or later on, it just makes you rebellious. Hey, don't give me the nod, but some of you who grew up in legalistic homes, did you rebel after that? I mean, like, not like listen to, you know, like Led Zeppelin rebel, but like you rebelled. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it caused. So irreligion, antinomianism, religion, like religiousy, legalism, it doesn't work. What do we need? What will keep us from sin? What will keep us from overdoing life? What will keep us? I'm going to argue it's not more rules. It's not no rules. I will argue it's relationship. Theological term is to really understand and live out our union in Christ. If we are walking with Jesus, if we are following Jesus, I promise you, he will walk us away from sin, never towards sin. Amen. And so let's just walk with him. But, we, but relationships are hard. So part of us, and this is Christianity sometimes, part of us are, when we become Christians, like, give me the rules. That way I know what not to do and what to do. And that's easy. No, no, no. Give me the relationship. Let me suss this out with Jesus. Let me walk with him, talk with him, and all that. Let me, let me have a relationship with him based on grace. And when you have a relationship where grace is reigning, see, grace is not freedom to sin. Grace is freedom from sin. That's, that's what Paul's talking about. And Paul's saying to each one of us and them as well, it's no little thing to sin after we have become a Christian because we're dead to it. We no longer are alive to sin. It no longer reigns in our life. Now, Ty, this is the question you're going to ask me. Ty, why do I still sin as a Christian? Because you're still, there's a brokenness about you living in this, this, this side of eternity and the world's broken. That's why you still sin. Let's pray and go home. No, I don't think that's enough. I think we need to press a little deeper. See, Paul says right here in this verse, it says that we are dead to sin. When we look at sin, we should say, it's dead to me. I no longer live for it or to it. What does Paul mean? When you become a Christian, you are no longer under the ruling governing power of sin. Before Jesus, you couldn't get out of it. In Christ, 
There are opportunities. There is power available for you. It still lingers around. One person wrote it up like this when it comes to a Christian with sin still running around the world. He says, if a wicked military force had complete control of a country and a good army invaded, the good army could throw the wicked force out of power and give the capital and the seat of government and communication back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live in the bush. The guerrilla force would create havoc for the new rightful government. It could often impose its will on part of the country, even though it could never get back into power. Meaning, sin is still out there and hits us in the head with the two before every once in a while, am I right? So, why, why do we still sin? I got some, got some thoughts on that. Why do we still sin? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, because we forget the gospel. We go about our lives and we just forget the gospel. And when I say forget the gospel, we forget the good news of Jesus. And when we forget the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we forget who we are in Christ, saints, and we forget whose we are in Christ, his. And so sometimes we go over to the opposite team and like, hey, let's just go sin for a while because we forget the gospel. Let me give you the second reason. Second reason we sin at times because we don't understand the gospel. We just think the gospel, and we say the word gospel about Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, empowerment of our lives. When we hear gospel, we think, yeah, that, that's the thing we talk about on Sunday, not Monday through Saturday. And so we think that's something that we, we, we do in here. That's our church lingo. We do in here, and so we, it's not been applied into our lives out there. It's not gotten into every nook and cranny of our lives. Third reason, third reason why you've never trusted the gospel in the first place. You do religious things, and you come in and you like religious activities and all that, and you think, oh, I do religious things, and I do religious activities, I'm spiritual of some sort, and I, I can say I believe in God, and I would be like, well, James says even the demons believe in God and shudder, so like, oh, they're not saved. But yeah, maybe you've not trusted the gospel in the first place, and you are lost. I'd put that up to submission, maybe. But something to process for sure. But what do we do with the lingering sin in our lives? Paul gives us some good information in verse 3. He says, do you not know? Now, if you notice like this verse and down a little bit more and a little bit next week, he talks about knowing something, like we've forgotten or we just, we, like he's trying to really get us to understand, hey, don't you know this? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Here, right here, it says that we are baptized into Jesus' death. I think what Paul's talking about when he says baptism, the primary thing he's talking about is our spiritual baptism. Meaning, when you trusted Jesus, the Spirit did an inward work inside of you that you went from death to life. Some people call that conversion. Some people call that regeneration. You were born again. You were made new. You were baptized of the Spirit. Notice I'm not saying second baptism of the Spirit. I don't, I don't think that's a, 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 something from the Bible that is, that's valid. Um, that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. Send me an email. But anyway, uh, by, baptized by the Spirit that you are brand new. That's primary. But I think there's also a secondary implication. He's asking us about our physical baptism as well. Baptism is inward, what the Spirit does, taking us from death to life. Baptism is outward, too. It's an outward expression of an inward change in each and every one of us. And so when you are baptized, we do baptism by immersion here, you go under the water. You're saying, I have died in Christ. I am dead. The old me is gone. That's why you go under the water. You're buried. And then you come back, right? So you're, you're, you're dead. So here's my question for you. Close your eyes. I want you 
to think about your baptism. Because it feels like Paul, as an implication, say, remember your baptism. Do you, do you remember it? Do you remember how old you were? Do you remember where you were at? Do you remember what happened? I remember mine. I, it was in the year 2000. I was uh, 23 years old. And I was in a little bit country Baptist church. It was 200 years old. Some of the original members were there. And uh, there was, uh, some of you know this, there was the wall in the back and it had like a cutout in it, a bathtub and a country mural scene behind it. And they maybe put on like a white robe, which was just not a very flattering white robe. And they put me in there, plop, plop, and like got dunked. I remember that. I remember, and like, I, I remember, I think back on that. I'm like, man, I remember when I first trusted Jesus. I remember that outward expression of what he was doing inside of me. Hey, uh, I'm pushing. I just want you to know, any of my Catholic friends in here, any of my Episcopal or my Anglican friends in here, uh, I'm pushing for this. I don't know how well it's going to go. I really want to get us to get a baptismal font here. You know what a baptismal font is? You ever been in like Catholic church or something like that? It's got a pool of water. Not saying holy water, but a pool of water. And you walk in, you dip your hands in it. Maybe some people make a sign of the cross. I would love for us to have one of those. Why? Just for a, a physical reminder. Like do you dip your hands in the water and every time you come here, you're like, oh, I remember my baptism. I remember that. Now, some of you say, I don't remember my baptism. Two reasons. Number one, you haven't been baptized. Good news for you, August 27th, we're baptizing people. And so if you have trusted Christ, be obedient and be baptized. And so sign up for that. Tell someone at Centerpoint, scan. There's like 18,000 QR codes in front of you. Scan something, tell somebody, we're going to get you baptized. We'll talk to you. We'll we'll, We'll lead you out on that. But for some of you, like, I don't remember my baptism because that happened when I was a baby. And then every time you come to a text like this, every time you read something about baptism, it causes this, this tension inside of you. You're like, I, I was raised Catholic, and my parents were doing the best they can, and they loved me well, and that was the best they knew just to get me baptized. And so now uh, I was baptized into that tradition, but then I see the scriptures here, and I feel like I need to be obedient in baptism. But if I'm obedient in baptism, then I'm going against my tr- tradition. What do I do? And so we read this text right here. You feel like I, I'm missing out on that. Some of you feel that way, all right? C- can I help you? You can honor your tradition for what it was. It was, a, it was a religious tradition that your parents thought best. Man, that's great. And yet you can obey Christ Jesus the Lord when the scripture tells us over and over to be baptized. You, you, you can live both within that. You can hold tradition and yet be obedient. And one of the beautiful things is you can invite your family into that and say, hey, I thank you for the tradition in which you raised me. But the text, it kind of shows me, the Bible is showing me that I need to make a decision to trust Jesus. And I've made a decision to trust Jesus. Now I'm going to make a decision to be baptized as well. Come along this journey with me as well. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Why not do that? Ty, you'd be like, Ty, why this emphasis on all this baptism stuff? Baptism does not save you. I want to say it one more time so you can hear me way back there. Baptism does not save you. But just because it doesn't save you, it doesn't have the power to save you, doesn't mean it's not powerful. It's exceptionally powerful. Um, Martin Luther, my favorite. Martin Luther, when the devil would tempt him, he would say something like, get away from me, I'm baptized. (laughs) Yeah, Martin Luther has some funny things. And so uh, I'm going to teach you one funny thing about Martin Luther and send me an email. Uh, he, when he would use the restroom, sitting style, uh, he would pray to God, and then he would, uh, he would also talk to the devil, and he would say, what ascends from here, Lord, you get. What descends is all yours, Satan. Anyway, 
But baptism is pointing... That's Martin Luther, not me. I'm just quoting. (laughs) Baptism is pointing to something beautiful. The, The death of Jesus. But if you have a death of Jesus, then something happens after his death. Look at verse 4. He says, we were buried, dead. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, resurrection from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. So what is true of Jesus, resurrection, is true of us as well. We get to walk in newness of life. We have a life change because we are something altogether brand new. Yet we still sin, but we're not under the reign or the power of the sin. We're under the reign and power of grace because of the resurrection of Jesus. And when it comes to sin in our lives, we don't want to sin, and sin makes us miserable, and we hate our sin. Why? Because we want to live in the resurrected new life in the reign of grace. Am I right? This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has changed us, like tangibly, we, we're, we're something altogether new. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Angie. She'll be at our second gathering. I'll, I've been married to her for a little over 28 years now. And uh, there's this mystical thing that has happened. We are two individuals. There's Angie, there's me. But the Bible says that we are one. We have union with one another. And I'm going to argue for an inseparable union unless she murders me. Like that was just a possibility. Uh, help. Um, inseparable union. And here's the thing. Because of our relationship, I am a changed man because of my relationship with her. Like I'm, I'm way more gentle. I'm way more kind. I'm, I'm way more not as loud. I'm way more patient. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing because of this relationship. Okay. How much more should a relationship with Jesus change us? Angie's great. She does not have the power to get into my heart and the power to make lasting change and the power to transform me into something new. How much more in this newness of life that Jesus gives us, you know, this empowered by the spirit life he gives us, should we be changed? This is the beautiful work of Christ in us. And and, and it's one of those works that he's just not, he's not going to quit us. He's not going to stop with us. You ever thought about that? You ever had someone stop loving you? You ever had someone just stop liking you? It's like it happened. It's one of the most painful things ever to go through. Don't know a reason why. Maybe something happened. Maybe unspoken things. Maybe distance. Maybe something like that. But when someone stops loving you and stops liking you, it's so painful. Listen, listen, listen. Jesus will never do that to you. Can you hear that today? He will not do that to you. He will keep loving you. He will keep liking you. How? Why? Because he he died for you. And one of the beautiful things of him dying for you is that you died with him too. And so in the tomb, in the grave of Jesus, he got up and walked out. Guess who stayed in the tomb? The old you. The old you died and left, he left you there. You know how good of news that is? Let me, let me give you one way, one, one implication, application of why that's good news. Uh, you, ever, you have re- regret? Do any of you have regrets? Like you did something and you regret it? Like right now, me saying that makes you either externally or internally go, like, like, oh my God, so much regret in life, right? Because the old you has died, that regret is still in the tomb. 
And so there's no need of you to grab a shovel and go dig it back up and relive it. Why? That's the old dead me. There's no need to allow someone else to grab a shovel and go dig that up and remind you of it. Why? That's the old you. Yes, you're culpable. Yes, you're responsible. Yes, you need to mend, mend, mend relationships. Yes, 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 yes. You're maybe still paying fines because of things like that. Absolutely. But the re regret is there. there there's no, no need of dwelling on the past old dead you. Why? Let's, let's stay some, uh, focus on the brand new life we have in Christ today, and tomorrow, and then and the next day. And I'll give you one more reason. One more reason your baptism is important. It's pointing to the fact that you are clean. Do you believe that? But on that clean, well, positionally before Christ, you're clean. Because what is true of Christ is now true of you. And he's clean, right? So every time you jump in a shower and every time you see water, and all, just remind yourself, in Christ, I am clean. I'm not dirt, because we feel dirty. No, no, no. You are clean in Christ. Uh, John says this in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We're like, hooray, forgiveness of sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Are you awake? That's really good news. This is amazing. I mean, even back in the day when people were baptized, they would get their Christian name. You ever heard people say, well, my, my name's Bill, but my Christian name's Mark or whatever, which is dumb. But like, even like Paul, like Saul and Paul, like you got like, you're, you are clean, you are brand new, you are in Christ. Ty, I don't feel that way. Perhaps, this is, perhaps, like there's a, there's a cemetery with your old self in it, and if not careful, we just take laps around the tombstone of like, this is who I was, and this is who I am, this is who I'll always be, and I remember all the bad things I did. And I would just argue, walk with Christ out of the graveyard. Go, go with him and live in the newness like you and I, we have new life because of Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. And I love that he used the word if. If we have been united with him. Listen, religion will not unite you with Christ. It will not. Doing spiritual things will not unite you. The only thing that will unite you with Christ is adoption. And the only way the Father will adopt you if you've been paid for by the blood of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection. That's only. So if you, if you die with Jesus, you will live with Jesus. If you have not died with Jesus, you will not live with Jesus. I'll take it one step further. If you don't live for Jesus right now in this life, you will not live with Jesus in the next. And so we're called to walk with him and to live with him and be you know, we have union with him. And since we have an inseparable bond with him, let's have communion with him as well. Let's walk and talk with him. Let's live with him, like literally every day. Verse 6, he says, We know the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, like the whole work, like a collection of volumes, the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's making that we know statement here, so we understand our old self was crucified. You, the old self, died on the cross with Jesus. That's what he's kind of pointing us to. You are dead and set free. That's what baptism is showing us. I know this is so counterintuitive when Jesus says, come and die with me, when the Bible says you're dead in Christ, because like, that's so counterintuitive, isn't it? 
Why? Because we're all doing everything we can do to live. Like, I, I, like you want to live today, am I right? That's, that's why we get up. That's why we work out. That's why we don't eat certain things. That's why we eat certain things. That's why we don't wrestle bears. We don't want to die. So it's like very counterintuitive. But think about it. What, what if you do die? Well, there's a few things that are going to happen. Number one, you won't have to go to work tomorrow. Don't, don't worry about a two-week two notice. But if you die, you really, are, you really are set free. This is what Jesus is talking about spiritually, spiritually, when it comes to sin. We are set free. The old self wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I came to Jesus as an adult, and I remember, if you would have came to me before I met Jesus and be like, hey, man, you want to go to church? I'd be like, oh, gosh, no. <laughs> That's, hey, man, want to give 10% of your money to the church? I'm like, no, no way whatsoever. Hey, man, you want to stop being an idiot? I'm like, no, I'm enjoying being an idiot. I have no desires. Come to know Christ. Yeah, I do want to be a part of the church. Yeah, I do want to give. Yeah, I do want to serve. Yeah, I do want to love. Yeah, I do want to try to stop being less than it. Yes. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of that, when Jesus looks at us now, he's like that old self, that old you, that sin, it's dead to me. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why when we as Christians go running to sin and try to get under the rule of sin, it's kind of like, we're committing, as the Bible says, spiritual adultery. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's like running back to a, a former lover is what it's like. It's like you're going back to a former lover. You're going back to your ex. Some of you are going to hate this illustration. It's like you're going back to your ex, going back to your former lover, and there's a little flirting, just a few texts sent. There's a rendezvous in an hourly hotel. That's what it's like when we're in Christ. We have a new lover. It's Jesus. We want to run back to the old lover of the reign of sin. We want to live under the reign of Jesus. That's why we call it cheating. But here's the good news of the gospel. Every time we cheat, Jesus takes us back. Time and time again. Because sin no longer reigns in our life. Grace does. Michael Bird said this. He says, For believers, sin is no longer their status, their state, or their master. You cannot live in sinland when the government posts your obituary in its newspaper, local newspaper. Why would you want to remain there anyway when you recently received a letter knowing finally you, that you had just inherited Graceland? Why would we want to go back? We allow sin to reign our life. Now, we heard the message, and here's the text. What do we do with this? I got two questions I want you to ask yourself today. Two questions. Question number one. What am I becoming? I want you to really think, what, what, am, like, what am I doing with my life that is forming and shaping me? And if it's forming and shaping me, then what am I becoming? It's making me something. We do a lot of great things in life. I feel like at times we're looking for, for perfection. We want the perfect body. And we want, we, we want perfection. We want the perfect mind. We want all these perfect things. But I just don't know if perfection is our personal goal. Go back to Romans 6, 4. Let me show you this. It says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might do what? What's it say? Newness of life. I'm, I'm going to argue that perfection, I don't think, is a good per personal goal. Now, some of you are going to push back some text for me. Be perfect, for therefore I am perfect. And talk, Paul talks about maturing and all that kind of stuff. All I'm saying is, 
I see right here from the text that I'm called to live a new life, to walk in newness of life. I'm going to argue that perfection in me is Christ's work. That's his job. I'm to join along in that job. I am to partner with him. I am, and that's through obedience and all that. So yeah, he's perfecting me, but it's he's doing the work. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll, I'll push this back to you. Philippians 1, 6, 6 says this, and I am sure of this. He who began a good work in me, who's the he who began a good work in me? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm going to argue that I want to grow in sanctification. I want to grow in holiness. I want, I want to grow in my walk. I want to grow in my new identity as a new creation for sure. But Jesus is the one that's going to perfect me. Glorification comes at the end. It's not now. Right? It comes at the, 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 the resurrection. So perhaps we should stop aiming for perfection because it ain't happening. That's Jesus' job. And perhaps the greatest thing we can do as Christians, listen to me, is just get serious about walking with Jesus. Stop seeing yourself as this project that you're always working on and just start walking with Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite things to do when it's not hotter than Hades outside is to go for long walks with my wife. I love grabbing her hand. And what do we do? We walk and we talk, and we listen. I'll tell her about me, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, all that kind of stuff. She'll tell me about her hopes, dreams, and fear, and all that, and we listen to one another, and we grow closer together, and that union just gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. It's great. The same is true with Christ. If we have union with him, then we are to commune with him, and all we need to do is walk and talk with him. That's all we need to do. Talk and listen. Talk is I pray. Listen, I read his word. As I do that, I'm following Jesus. And that's making me more like Christ. And that will make me become more like Christ and live in that newness of life, I believe. So question number one, what are you becoming? Ask that question. What am I, what am I really becoming? If I were to like look this life ahead, what, what am I turning into? Someone I see on TV? Someone I admire? Some idol out there? Or am I looking more and more like Christ? I think that'll make our day-to-day different. Question number two, what needs to die in my life? Can we all just be honest? There, there's something in every one of our lives, that it, just something that needs to die. I really, like, every one of us has something that we need to lay down, something we need to die to, die from, something we need to set aside for a season, for a lifetime, some type of sin, some type of habit, some type of temptation that we keep putting ourselves in, something that just we need to lay down. It just needs to die. Why? Because we are dead to sin, as Paul said in verse 2, right? We're dead, so let's, let's die to sin. I mean, think about it like this. How can we in Christ love sin if sin is what killed the one we love the most? Our sin killed Jesus. Our sin, like, he had to go to the cross because of it. And if we love Jesus, how can we con- continue to keep doing that? Because it killed the lover of our soul, the one we love the most. Let me try it like this. Um, lots of us, if not all of us, have lost loved ones to cancer, haven't we? We probably have. So none of us are putting a pink ribbon on the back of our cars that says, I love cancer. I want to entertain cancer. No, I've seen some pretty harsh language on cancer out there. The One of them is the word that we're not supposed to use, cancer. Have you seen that one too? What? Now, I read that, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I have that on my car or not. If you do, eh, it's up to you. 
but why, why something so strong? Because it's killed the one you love. In a godly way, we need that attitude when it comes to sin. We, we, we need that attitude. So, so, so what is it, the sin in our lives that we just need to lay down? Let me, let, me, let me probe a little bit. Is it sexual sin? Like a lingering look and it turns into thoughts. A little, you know, temptation happens to every one of us, but what will we do with that temptation? Pornography, sexual activity outside of marriage, is it some kind of sexual sin or whatever? Is, is it like people sin? Like we live in a very polarized, uh, divided time to where if not careful, we see people groups. And for some of you are very politically charged, and whoever's on the other side of the aisle, whatever that is for you, you hate those people in your heart. And Jesus calls that murder, so that's bad. Is, is it, is it uh, word sin to where, like, I just love a morsel of gospel, uh, go- gossip and telling gossip all the time? I, I, I love lying and bending the truth, and now my lies are so many they get kind of intertangled and all that kind of stuff. Is it some kind of habitual sin to where, like, you keep running to something over and over that's not Jesus, and it's like, uh, it's become a bad habit, and if not a compulsion, if not an addiction, could be eating, drinking, television, whatever, whatever, shopping, whatever that is. What is it? There's there's grace for that, right? We we don't have to live under the reign of grace. So so there's grace for that, and and the grace for that is confession and repentance. There's grace. There's refreshment in that that I can that God loves me. He's not going to quit on me. He won't give up on me. I can confess this to Him. It's not going to scare Him away. He already knows. I can repent like, God, forgive me of that and turn away from it. And His grace reigns. It will reign in our life. That's, that's the good news. So those two questions, what are you becoming and what do, what do you need to lay down? I can't answer that for you. So let's, let's go to the Lord. Let's pause a little bit. and It's like, God, show me what I'm becoming. Guide me. God, show me what I need to lay down. Forgive me. And then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Sound good? All right, let me pray for us. Father. Thank you so much for your just kindness, your love, grace, and mercy. It is really what leads us to repentance. And in repentance, there's refreshment. And in refreshment, there's just the rain, the feel of grace in our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray you'd be good to us in what you are. You would really show us a picture, an idea of what we really are becoming by our life now. Show us where we need to, to turn, modify, to, to follow Jesus more, to look more and more like him, to walk in newness of life after the perfect one. And, and God, we, we want to be haters of our own sin to where it, it hurts our, our hearts. We know it killed the one we loved, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, would you be the convictor and and show us, show us our sin. Show us the place of us to confess and to repent and turn away. Holy Spirit, as we do that, the word says you're the comforter. So in Christ, as we confess and repent of sin, Holy Spirit, comfort us with the reminder of the reign of Christ in our lives. Help us, enable us, empower us to walk in the newness after Christ. 
grow us more and more into his likeness to where we love you with all we have. We love our neighbors well. And as we do that, may we be the light of Christ to the world around us. May it be attractional that you would draw men, women, boys, and girls to yourself, Jesus. Unite us, strengthen us, help us. We ask all this in Christ's name for your glory alone we pray. Amen.